Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have the pleasure of talking again with Dave Asprey because he's written a new great book on one of my favorite topics, Fast This Way. It's obviously about fasting and all the magnificent, incredible benefits it provides to you. Is it for everyone? Heck no. And Dave will be the first to admit that, but it's for most of us, certainly the two thirds of us who are either overweight or obese. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dave. Dr. McCullough, thanks for having me on. I've been a uh... I've been a fan for many, many years of, of what you're doing and sharing. So anytime we get a chance to chat, it always makes me happy. Yeah. And you've, I want to thank you too, for being such a pioneer in developing this space. You know, one of my passions is biohacking. No question about it. If I could focus on one thing is that, you know, as you get into your sixties, the improving the quality of your health and longevity becomes an ever important topic. So that's why I put a lot of effort and energy into that. And you've really been a leader in this space and exposed me to so many different strategies and really helped me personally on this. So I thank you for that. Uh, fasting has been an important tool. Uh, and I think it's something, some, a strategy almost everyone benefits from. So tell you, and you, in your book, which is excellent, by the way, it's a real easy, fun to read book. Uh, you discuss how your journey, how you started through this. And you know, what was shocking to me in reading it because you, you, you share your personal experience as you first started with must've been, you'll tell me it's like, I don't know, it was like 10 years ago when you did your first fast and this journey in the caves and stuff. 2008. Yeah. 2008. So 12 years ago. And I, because I, I just fasted a few weeks ago and I'm saying, I don't remember a fraction of those details. How did you figure out 12 years later what you were going through and what are your experience? Did you write it down or journal it? Or I did journal at the time, um, but it really stuck with me because what I, what I did is I said, okay, I weighed 300 pounds and I've lost a lot of my weight, but I know that if I don't eat six times a day, that I'm going to go into starvation mode. And if you go into starvation mode, then you'll suddenly ma magically get fat, even though I've been doing that and I weigh 300 pounds. And so there was a logical, but that's the belief that we have. And I also recognized that I was actually afraid of being alone. So more on the personal development side of things. So I said, all right, I'm just going to hire a shaman to drop me off in a cave uh, you know, 10 miles away from anyone. So there's no food and there's no people. And then I'm going to sit there for four days and I'm just going to have to deal with it. And if I get hypoglybitchy and hangry, I can yell at the walls, right? Like, like I'm just going to face this. And it wasn't about weight loss. It was about understanding, you know, the emotional thing there and kind of showing myself who is boss. And so I write the book. It's, it's the, the arc of that story. And what I believe, and I think you'd agree, Dr. McCullough, there are some fantastic books on the biology of fasting. 
Like mm -hmm. we, we know how it works. I recommended it and it, it was a core part of the Bulletproof Diet, which I put online in 2010 and I wrote my big book in 2014. So I kind of feel like, guys, I told you this, you know, there's many people like Dr. Fung, there's so much good knowledge. And to, to just replicate that in a book would not be of service to readers. But what really came out of this was understanding why it's so hard to tell someone who's never fasted, you should try fasting because the word fasting is associated with pain. And I wanted to teach people some hacks for fasting to get in and then put a whole chapter in for women. Cause just like you said, fasting doesn't work for everyone and there is no one best kind of fasting. And the evidence seems pretty clear that fasting the same way every day or every week is probably also not the best strategy. So like, how, how do you make it so you can fast without pain when you have stuff to do? And how do you make it so you fast with all of the emotions of fasting when you want to really dig deep and, and, you know, do the meditation, personal development side of fasting and sorting through all that hasn't been done in a book. That's why I wrote it. Yeah, it was great, great to get your perspective on it and some incredibly good pearls in it. But before we go into the details, I'd like you to expand on an important point you just mentioned about the starvation mode. And you are absolutely correct. There's no doubt in my mind that fasting does not activate this. But there are other strategies that do indeed activate starvation mode. Like when you're having a low calorie diet for months and months and months, yeah. that activates it. So why don't you expand on that and you know, tell us exactly what is going to activate this that's going to sabotage your weight loss as opposed okay. to fasting, how that's not going to do it. Well, on my journey of losing that 100 pounds, um, I found that I was going to do what everyone said would work. So I went to the gym an hour and a half a day, six days a week, half weights, half cardio, until I could max out all but two machines at the gym. And I would do 45 minutes on the treadmill at a 15 degree angle wearing a backpack and you know, really just pushing it. And I went on a low fat, low calorie diet. And at the end of this 18 months, I'm sitting at a Carl's Jr. with friends. I'm eating the chicken salad with no chicken and no dressing. And my friends are eating double Western bacon cheeseburgers. And I just looked around. I'm like, I exercise more than all my friends. And I eat less than all my friends, even though I'm taller than they are. And maybe I'm just eating too much lettuce, right? Because the belief is so ingrained, right? And this is not talking about like anorexia or anything. It was just like a sincere desire to lose weight and to have a 46 inch waist after that much exercise and low calorie dieting and all the suffering and just like intense hunger and looking at the food and saying, I'm not going to do that today and not doing it and still not getting results. Oh my God. The, the sense of personal failure that comes with that, it, it's one thing that holds people back and, and makes us stay heavy. And what's going on there is there is a hunger set point that is caused by ghrelin, one of the hunger hormones that you're well familiar with. It's a precursor to leptin. So research has shown that when you lose weight using a low calorie diet or through excessive exercise, and I was doing both, that your hunger set point will remain your fat set point. And it will always do that. And the thing that turns your set point for hunger to your actual weight instead of to your fat weight is ketones. So if you were to fast for a couple of days or use the fasting hacks that I talked about in the book, and there's three fasting hacks to turn off hunger, and two of them are going to help you get your ketones up, that will even just one dose will reset your hunger levels because otherwise what you're stuck with is this gnawing hunger now that you're at your new 
new weight. She's like, I love it. I just bought new pants. This is fantastic. But you kept your, your fat pants because if you're like me, I didn't lose 100 pounds. I lost 200 pounds because you lose 25, gain 35, lose 35, gain 45. Which sort of, like you yo-yo all the time. And people call it yo-yo dieting. And it is yo-yo dieting. It's because it's the wrong kind of diet. And when you switch to a diet that is at least half calories and usually more than that from the right fats, not the bad fats. And this is a core thing that even Robert Atkins got wrong. And he's a pioneer of, of the keto diet. I lost 50 pounds on Atkins when I was 25 years old. Right? And the other 50 pounds took me another 10 years to lose because that's the hard stuff. It's getting the fat and the protein types right, not eating inflammatory vegetables even. And that was the basis for the Bulletproof Diet principles. And you and I are in very much agreement on I'd probably 90%. There's always little tweaks where, you know, you know, we're always looking for the edge, but directionally, um, I think that you've been one of the leaders in, in the space talking about what all these different foods do. And I, I finally got there, but I still, I would, I would do keto, but I wouldn't fast because frankly, it was abhorrent. I, I know how, how mean I get when I'm hungry. At least I used to, I don't anymore. I don't really get that hungry. And it was only after 10 years of doing this intermittent fasting with or without bulletproof coffee that, and having talked with tens of thousands of people online and just recognizing the patterns here and, and that, look, if you're a health influencer and you don't have a job and you don't have kids, you don't have a commute, you don't have any of the normal life stressors. Yeah. Meditate, wake up in the morning, meditate for two hours, sip your tea, maybe do a couple of fasts, but the rest of us with busy lives, Joe, it's really hard to start fasting in the middle of a stressful day when you've got new kids who are supposed to be in school at home with you. And I just found that I could never find as a young entrepreneur, I couldn't find the energy to fast. But now um, I can teach people and we can share on this episode how to use fasting without pain when you just want the benefits and how to use fasting with all of the emotions that come with it when you want to grow as a human being and that you get to pick. So the pain isn't there. Okay. So it's a great intro. Uh, and thank you for expanding on that. The, uh, I guess the first step is why don't you, from your perspective and all these years and promoting and appreciating and reviewing the, the literature on this, what do you think the main benefits of fasting are for someone to consider so they're motivated to give it a try? And then we'll go into the details on how you can effortlessly implement this. The main benefit of fasting is it makes your body better at making energy. And when you do a better job of turning 30 pounds of air and whatever food you eat or don't eat, as the case may be, into electrons, then when you do a better job, you're not going to get diabetes. <laughs> your blood sugar regulation will improve. And if you can stave off or just not get diabetes, by the way, I was diagnosed with prediabetes when I was 24, <laughs> and I don't have that problem anymore. So you can certainly reverse that, that situation. But what you end up with is you say, okay, diabetes is a precursor to all of the diseases of aging. So what's going to likely kill you? It's probably not a, a famous virus. It's probably cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, or Alzheimer's disease. And if you can dodge those four major bullets, you're probably going to live longer than you're supposed to, which is a big goal that you and I have you'll have enough energy to go do the stuff you want. You'll be able to be with your grandkids. You'll be able to start a company. You'll be able to do whatever you want to do. And this is that thing that that's missing is that if you can get your metabolism up and running, you won't get diabetes. 
The second reason that you want to look at this is that it's inherently anti-aging, even apart from that, because fasting turns on autophagy, which is when your cells, and there's two kinds of autophagy, there's cellular autophagy, and then there's there, the autophagy that happens inside your mitochondrial, your mitochondria, where your mitochondria actually will sit there and go, wait, you mean we're going to have to be prepared to go 18 hours without food, maybe the weak ones here, they just aren't set up for that. So now I have a signal from my environment to get rid of the weak mitochondria. And when I get rid of them, I'll build fresh, young, new ones. And then you get to use those even when you're eating. And now you can make more electrons and more electrons equals more thoughts, more feelings, more ability to like be a good friend, a good parent, all that kind of stuff. But it's because you got rid of the old stuff. And that's an unappreciated side of fasting because most of us don't want to think about, oh, I, yeah, I have some old cells or some kind of weak cells, uh, but almost anything that we do, high intensity interval training, which you and I are both fans of, um, your peak, uh, peak training, it will do something similar. But when you combine that with fasting, man, your body's like, get rid of that old stuff. Regenerate. It's kind of like a, a snake shedding its skin. Fortunately, we don't have to do that. But inside ourselves, we're just getting rid of that old stuff left and right. And it's that autophagy process that is a really big deal. Okay, great. So I couldn't agree more. There's uh, so many benefits. And uh, you mentioned diabetes as a primary one. And the reason that's such a big issue is that not only does it raise your blood sugar, which in itself is intrinsically problematic, but it generates these reactive carbonyl species. Uh, things like methylglyoxal. And saying, what the hell is that all about? Well, it goes and that, that can go and trigger the uh, oxidation of fats in your body, which is what I perceive now is one of the primary reasons that you're developing all diseases and dying prematurely because you know, there's these perishable fats called linoleic acid, which are just sus completely susceptible to this. And they generate all these... Uh, oxidation byproducts, something called oxlams or oxidative linoleic acid metabolites, and they just destroy your physiology and your, you know, your structural components. So that's why it's so important. And, and when you fast, you, you're able to do this. So now that we have some glimpse of the incredible benefits we can achieve from implementing fasting. What have you learned and what can you provide us with with respect to how to implement this incredible strategy effortlessly? The effortlessly part is the big deal. Um, we are wired inside our cells to be lazy. So you don't have to have guilt about being lazy in, in that we don't want to use more energy to do something than is required because that's like the algorithm for all life forms to efficiently use food to be alive. So it's okay to say, I don't want to, I don't want to spend more work on this than I needed to. And the, there's three fasting hacks that are in fast this way. And the first one is that if you can bump your ketone levels up just a little bit. So if you're in full on nutritional ketosis, you've been fasting for a couple of days, you're eating a ketogenic diet then what you end up doing is you get your levels above one. Um, and this is if you think, do a finger stick to get your ketone levels, you know, if you pee on a little strip, it'll turn pink kind of levels. But there's very interesting research that shows 
at levels slightly below 0.5, which is not really nutritional ketosis, that is where two major hunger hormones shift. And one of the hunger hormones we mentioned earlier is called ghrelin. And ghrelin will drop at 0.38. So almost no ketones. So if you can use your fasting just to get that little bump or use the, fast, the two fasting hacks for keto we'll talk about here, the hunger that comes with ghrelin turns off. But there's also a satiety hormone, the one that makes you feel full, which is called CCK or cholecystokinin. And CCK, when you hit levels of 0.48, CCK makes you feel full. And when you look at that, you're like, wait a minute, if I could just get my ketones up to that level in the morning, then I will not pay attention to food. Most of us, when we start intermittent fasting, someone puts a donut in front of you in a conference room at 1030 when you normally be hungry, you're going to look at that thing and you're going to have a very serious conversation with the donut about why you shouldn't eat it. And it's going to tell you why you should eat it. And sometimes you will, sometimes you won't, but you're going to leave that meeting actually hungry and a little bit exhausted because of that inner dialogue. And having been so obese, I really understand like that sensation, that conversation. So if you get your levels up, you'll do it. So the first step to get your levels up is black coffee because a study came out of UC San Diego and it well, showed- I, th I, think, I think you mean, excuse me, but mycotoxin-free black coffee. You know, funny enough, I do mean mycotoxin-free black coffee. And uh, that means coffee that's lab tested for mold toxins. And yes, the bulletproof beans are that. I, I popularized that. I did the original research about this. And there's a bunch of reasons because anything that causes inflammation is going to make you hungry because inflammation just means the electrons that should be powering your thoughts are going to create inflammation in the body. So like they got to go somewhere. And um, these toxins are are present at, you know, very small amounts, five parts per million is where coffee that has more than five parts per million is illegal to sell in China, Japan, and Europe, but it gets sent to the US. And then we drink it and we wonder why we get really hungry two hours after we have coffee, why we want sugar in our coffee. It has to do with toxins, not coffee itself. But the study at UC San Diego is really interesting, Dr. McCullough, because they found that the amount of caffeine present in two small cups of black coffee will double ketone production. So that means if you have an early dinner, which is something else that I recommend in the book, so you don't eat too close to bedtime. Well, let's say you ate dinner at, and you finished at six and you went to bed at 10, you got four hours of fasting, you sleep for eight hours, you got 12 hours of fasting already. You have basically a medium size or a large that's going to be a 12 hour fast plus doubling of ketones. And for a lot of people, wow, my hunger levels just went down and that can be enough. And the second way that I know is people have lost a million pounds on this technique is to make the coffee bulletproof. And what that means, you take your mycotoxin free beans, you add some MCT oil, the eight carbon chain MCT is the correct one. And there's, it's very interesting when I made, when I popularized MCT, in the world of keto and all, I tried regular MCT oil and it worked, but it created gastric distress. And then I tried the C8 MCT oil and it was very noticeably different for hunger suppression and for cognitive function. So this is the one that I took to market. And five years after that happened, Dr. Kinane at UC San Diego did research on this and found that C8 MCT raises ketones four times more than coconut oil and coconut oil only raises ketones as much as fasting for eight hours. 
So a tablespoon of coconut oil is not the same as a tablespoon of MCT oil. The reason you put the butter in and then you blend it and you gotta blend it or at least shake it really seriously. And you do that because, and this was, I, I, I did not know why it drove me crazy. I funded research at the University of Washington. It was a $50,000 grant without an outcome in mind uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, Gerald Pollock. And he figured out that when you have water close to grass-fed butter or close to MCT oil, it creates a very large exclusion zone in the water. And this is why the Tibetans drink yak butter tea, which was the, the spark of creation that helped me make Bulletproof Coffee. And that exclusion zone is very important during fasting. So when you have uh, water that you just drink normally, your body takes the water and puts the water near all of your cell membranes, which are, as you and I know, made of tiny droplets of fat. And then you have to heat the water with 1200 nanometer light, infrared light, in other words, body heat. And you got to make body heat from food, from energy, from somewhere. And that creates a load on the body. And that, that converts the water from bulk water into the water that we use to make ATP and into the water that we use to do every biological process, including autophagy, including mitophagy, including folding proteins. Everything that we do in our cells requires this state of water. Well, when you put that tiny bit of butter and the MCT oil and you blend it in the morning, the MCT is going to raise your ketone levels very meaningfully. I can always get to 0.5 with just a bulletproof coffee, but you're also getting this water in the form of the coffee that is already primed um, for your body to use it, to start burning fat, to start making energy. And so you do that, you're like, oh, I have a ton of energy. I feel really good. And this is why taking a bite of butter and drinking a cup of coffee isn't gonna do it for you. It's a, it's a different process. And I have noticed profound differences from doing that. And the reason you can have fat during a fast and it's still a fast is that we fast for three different reasons. And we fast for aging and metabolic benefits. We fast for weight loss if you need to lose weight. And we fast for giving your gut a rest. And if you wanna give your gut a rest, you probably don't wanna have anything other than water uh, and salt, right? And there are purists out there who will say you have to only have water and salt because that's what the mice had in the study. I don't think that makes sense. Mice don't have espresso machines because it works better with coffee for sure. And very likely for most people, if you do it bulletproof style, I have found that for women in particular, starting out with this really helps because jumping in, especially if you're over 40 and saying, oh, I'm going to intermittent fast every single day. There is a wall that people hit when they overfast, just like when they overexercise. And what you, you want to do is not hit that wall. And having enough energy present when you're starting can really help a fast. And there's one more hack after that, unless you have any commentary about that. Well, just a quick question. Wall. You'd mentioned that you can increase a, double the ketones just with simple coffee from the caffeine. Uh, and I'm wondering what the increase is. Uh, when you synergistically add the caprylic acid or, or C8 MCT oil? What we don't know right now is um, whether they're multiplicative or additive. So we know you can double your ketone production from coffee and we know you get a 4X boost in ketones. But what we don't know is, do you get an 8X boost or a 6X boost or, or just a 4X boost? But what we do know is that they all work independently and they appear to work better together but uh, to date, no one has studied that combination to see what it would do. 
but you've reminded me that I ought to actually reach out to Dr. Kinane and see if uh, he'd be up for a test like that. That'd be a very interesting data point. Yeah, because you're, you're right. The ketone elevation is an important part of why fasting works in the mechanism. If you can hack it in a way to uh, simply, then it, you know, it makes it a lot, lot easier to do and effortless, as you say. It, and it, it's, look, if you have a, a busy day at work and you just have a lot of stress, you can just do a straight intermittent fast. And once your metabolism is, is flexible and fixed the way mine is, look, I could, I could have it bulletproof style or just black. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to be okay, right? I'm not going to be hungry anyway, learned. Uh, but for someone who's brand new to fasting, the difference is very profound in, you know, can I show up as myself at work today? <laughs> because you have to keep doing that so you can keep, you know, drinking coffee. That, that's kind of how it goes. Like it, you have to you know, put the bread on the table, but it's got to be gluten-free, zero-carb bread. <laughs> so the next hack is one that no one in the fasting community has talked about, to my knowledge, um, and, and is uh, really important. It came out of my research on anti-aging. So in the course of my evolution, I did a, a carnivore-like diet when I was testing out the, the edges of the Bulletproof diet. So for three months, I ate um, only meat and fats, and I would have one small serving of broccoli a day. Uh, so it wasn't officially full carnivore, but pretty darn close. And after about three months of this, I was monitoring my sleep. I use a ring now, but I've been monitoring my sleep every night for 15 years with headbands and all sorts of stuff because I used to be such a bad sleeper. And what I found was that I was waking up 10 or 12 times a night. I would have no recollection of it, but I'd wake up in the morning feeling hungover. And this is a really common thing that happens. And women get it before men, but we both get it if you go zero carb without cycling in and out. And one of the reasons that I believe this is happening is based on your gut bacteria. So if you really wanted to be able to do more keto or more extended fasting, there is a huge body of evidence that says prebiotic fiber, not the, the rough fibers that can't be digested, but just the prebiotic ones that are converted by your gut bacteria, the good gut bacteria, when you feed them, they convert this into propionic acid and butyric acid. And butyric acid or butyrate, as it's known, is very, very pro-ketogenic. In fact, you can get into a state of ketosis by taking a handful of butyrate capsules. Unfortunately, they smell like sweat socks. They aren't a very nice supplement to take. But uh, you want more butyric acid if you want to live a long time and have a healthy metabolism. And all of these other studies show massive hunger suppression when you do this. So if you put prebiotic fiber, which has essentially no flavor, if you put that in your coffee in the morning, you can do that with the butter and the MCT. You can do it just in black coffee. You'll also find that you care nothing about food. And there's officially something like 20 calories in, in a, a couple scoops of that stuff. But those calories are not digested by your body. They get turned into saturated fats, like very short chain saturated fats that are good for you. And... This prevents one of the other problems of fasting. You have a collection of gut bacteria and we all have some good and some bad. Ideally you have more good than bad and ideally you have a lot of species. When you start going on longer term fasts or on a carnivore like diet, the gut bacteria shifts in a way that is not beneficial from an aging perspective. 
However, if you're getting only prebiotic fiber and none of the rough fiber that appears to cause some of the problems, especially when we're looking at that world um, of you know what, what should we eat, should we not eat, uh, what you'll find is that you have a very healthy set of diverse gut bacteria. I was able to quadruple the number of species of good guys in my gut using this, and it's totally compatible with fasting, and it turns off hunger like no one's business. So now you're saying, wait a minute, I could have the coffee I was going to have anyway. I don't put the sugar and artificial crap in it. I get the mold-free coffee, and then I have a choice of drinking it black, of adding butter and MCT, and or adding prebiotic fiber. And what you do then is you drink this and you just stop caring about food. You go into the zone and you have like the best morning you've ever had. And you can do this. And then the next morning, maybe you only have black coffee or maybe you have tea or maybe you have nothing at all, but it's okay. And it's even preferable to mix up your length and style of fasting. What you never want to do during a fast is eat protein because protein is going to raise your insulin a little bit, but it's going to turn on proteolytic enzymes in the liver. And in the pancreas too, actually. And once that happens, now you're taking these enzymes, you're using them to break down the protein you ate instead of to use those enzymes to do repair systems and to drive your, your mitophagy and your autophagy in your cells. And you never want to have sugar because if you're raising your insulin levels, then you're basically breaking your fast, except not really. <laughs> uh, at least your blood sugar levels and thus insulin will go up even if you just sit in a sauna or if you exercise. And so there's great debate in the fasting community, uh, but generally you want to keep, you want to exercise at the end of a fast to get the most benefits. But when you do exercise uh, or you do expose yourself to a stressor like heat or cold, you are going to see a change in your insulin because your body will release adrenaline and cortisol and the adrenaline and cortisol will then come in and uh, raise your blood sugar because that's their job. They're your emergency hormones to give you fuel when you need to do that. Uh, so just don't eat stuff that causes you to do that. And you're still maintaining your fast as far as I can tell. And I vetted that with Sim Land, who wrote the book, uh, uh, Metabolic Autophagy, and several other experts who say, actually, yeah, you are maintaining your fast if you have fat in the fast. So there's purists in, in every realm, whether we're talking vegan, keto, or fasting. Um, and all three of those types of eating end up with something that I, I call in this book and fast this way, I call it the fasting trap. And it's something that I think we ought to talk about. The idea of a, of a trap is that if you do something in your diet that makes you feel really good and it works for six weeks, you rationally become convinced that this is something that works. So when I was a raw vegan uh, many years ago in the early 2000s, I said, all right, look, this, this works. I feel really good. And then I started saying, all right, I'm getting really tired when I wake up in the morning and my hair is getting thinner. I have really sore joints and my teeth, actually one of them shattered and they were always sensitive to cold. And I was eating a very carefully crafted diet with lots of fat and like doing soaking everything, doing all the stuff you're supposed to do. I wasn't a, you know, Cheetos and Coke kind of, uh, kind of vegan. And well, I did it for a good year and a half before <laughs> I finally realized what I was doing. Some people do it for years. And what you do is you say, oh, I wasn't raw enough. I wasn't vegan enough. And then you get into keto. You go to a traditional keto conference and you see a lot of people saying, oh, keto works so well for me. And, and you look at them like, dude, you're 350 pounds. And he goes, yeah, but I used to be 600. 
I lost 150 pounds on keto. And then about two years ago, I hit a plateau and I'm still on that plateau. And that was me. I lost my 50 pounds. I couldn't lose my other 50 pounds. What I needed to do was do some fasting, some intermittent fasting. And I needed to pay attention to the quality and type of fat that I ate and the quality and type of protein that I ate. And this is like core to all the stuff that I teach. And it's core to what you teach. It's not enough to just cut your carbs. And that's a keto trap. You know, I, you know, I had 15 grams of carbs and I didn't lose weight. Maybe I should have 12, but meanwhile, other parts of your biology aren't working because you needed to cycle. And then the fasting trap is I know how good I feel on one, one meal a day fasting, OMAD fasting, which sounds all amazing. Therefore I'm going to do OMAD every day for the rest of my life. And then six months later, your sleep is destroyed. Your cycle is messed up. If, if you're a woman and if you're a guy, you don't have a kickstand in the morning and you know, all these things happen, but you know, it can't be your diet because your diet made you feel so good. And this is why these can be traps. And it's why cycling by mixing up your types of fasting. And sometimes, especially on a Saturday or Sunday morning with your family, eat the waffles, just make them gluten-free and all that kind of stuff, or maybe don't even have any greens at all. Um, you can do some, some healthy forms of that, but it's okay to have breakfast sometimes. It's okay to break your fast sometimes and to have three meals a day. And you wanna do that because otherwise you don't have metabolic flexibility. What you have is you can only do keto, you can only do vegan, you can only fast, and you've gotta be able to have a metabolism that can take what the world has in it. Yeah, yeah. So an extension of that would be the time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. And the uh, most extreme version of that would be one meal a day or OMAD, as you mentioned. So you're eating for one hour and 23 hours, you're not. So the most people don't go to that extreme and they'll go to a two-hour, a four-hour window. And I tried that for a while, but I realized, especially as I'm in my 60s now, that that probably isn't a good strategy. So that my body needs a little more time to digest the food and spread it out. So I really don't go under six hours much anymore. And I used to do two hours. It's pretty easy for me to do a 22 hour fast, 24, 20, 20 hour at a minimum. But now I just, I kept it, kept it to 16 hours. And even though I can, you know, do it, I just choose not to. And I'm just wondering if you can comment on that. Oh, I, I love it that you've come to that conclusion. For most people doing a 16-8 fast, where you fast for 16 hours and eat for the eight hours, it's fine. And what's really cool is you're going to have some days, especially if you're trying to lose weight or you just want a little bit more energy, you can say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, to today, um, I'm feeling no hunger and it's two o'clock when I would normally break my fast. I'm just going to wait till dinner. And like, oh, look, I did a 24-hour fast. And if you do that once every week or two, like, great, you turned on extra autophagy. There are benefits to doing that. Or once a month, I'm going to do a 48-hour fast. That's really good. But if you instead go down that path of saying, I'm going to do this you know, every day, it's going to be a problem. So the idea is be flexible about your fasting regimen. I even like the word regimen. It's just a practice that we do. And it's a practice that makes us feel good. It makes us perform better. And it makes us age less, but doing it too much is a real danger. And if you're going to do something like a four day fast after about 48 hours, I call it stage four fasting in the book. Um, there's all sorts of additional forms of autophagy that turn on. And, you know, once, a once every three or six months doing a 48 hour fast is really well advised, but man, as a weekly practice, that'll mess you up. And the problem is if you're 25 and you're like, yeah, I work out all the time and I feel really good. I'm on top of the world and, you know, I'm building my future. It's so tempting to do that because what you're doing is you're telling the body, all right, why don't you just live on cortisol and adrenaline? And I will tell you as a very successful entrepreneur, that feels great, 
right? The problem is that you run out, like there's a wall, you can hit the wall. And with these practices, you can move the wall out pretty far, but there's still a wall. It just means you have more time to build up speed before you hit it. So I don't want to see younger people wrecking themselves by over fasting. And especially for women, that's why there's the, the chapter for women in Fast This Way, where women will hit the wall before men do. And I think there's evolutionary reasons for this um, that are just based on evolutionary biology. Um, but it, it's a big problem. And I oftentimes see thyroid problems manifest uh, and some autoimmunity manifests. And there are good studies that show, you know, chronic stressors trigger autoimmunity and over fasting is a chronic stressor almost by definition. Yeah. So one of the uh, strategies that purists in the fasting community advocate in uh, true North in Northern California near Yurok neck of the woods would be the classic example. Uh, most of the, those purists tend to be of the vegetarian or vegan belief system and uh, they only advocate water and nothing else. And some of course do dry fasting, but I mean, it's just water, no supplements at all. So obviously you don't advise that because of the benefits of and making it effortless of the, of the bulletproof type coffee uh, approach. And then, but I'm wondering, let me just let me finish. Yeah, so one of the other things that happens when you fast is that you detox and that's a good thing, but it could be potentially bad because if you don't know how to do it properly, that release of these persistent organic pollutants from your fat tissues can be highly problematic. So there's a simple intervention and you have mentioned in your book, and I just want you to elaborate on it, is oh, the man. introduction of activated charcoal. So yeah. that would be another thing that you add to the fasting regimen, which isn't food, of course, but it can be enormously beneficial for so many things, especially absorbing these toxins that are released. And, and, and especially if you're integrating sauna into the equation. I'm so happy you brought that up, Dr. McCullough. There is, um, I, I wrote a blog post many years ago called the rapid fat loss protocol, how to lose fat faster than you should. And I had a, uh, one of the guys doing it lose 75 pounds in 75 days. The problem is that if you biopsy your fat cells, they're full of heavy metals and pesticides and mycotoxins if you've been exposed. So the universal thing that will happen is you will experience massive brain fog. You'll feel like a zombie. And this was a big thing for me because I had toxic mold exposure as one of my things and I had heavy metals. So fasting is detoxing. And if you're just on a water fast like that, man, that is a rough road, right? You know, you'll, you'll experience it, but your, your liver and your kidneys might not be too happy that you experienced it. So what I recommend in the book, you have these very interesting things um, in your gut, these gut bacteria that make lipopolysaccharides known as LPS. And LPSs can cross the gut barrier and then they cause inflammation in the body and they trigger cravings in the brain. So when the bad guys in your gut are going, I didn't get my sugar, I didn't get any food. Oh my God, it's a mortal threat. If there's a threat, I should release toxins. They'll ramp up their LPS production and then you'll feel like garbage. And then you have to use even more willpower to get through your fast. Or you could take activated charcoal that binds directly to LPS in multiple studies. And then you don't feel the hunger and you don't have to take the biological hit of all of the toxins you're releasing from your fat. And that really makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. so it's a, it's a brilliant strategy. And I, I use it pretty regularly in my, and I don't fast 
that frequently because once I think you're metabolically healthy, as you alluded to earlier, I'm convinced that most of us would benefit from maybe a quarterly fast, but as little as, you know, two to three, four times a year. I wouldn't do it more than once a quarter. Four, I'm talking about four, multiple day fasts, four to five days, uh, because it's just such a magnificent intervention. I personally don't like to do it during the colder months because I don't know about you, but when I fast for a while, my, my I get cold. It could be the middle of a summer and I'll be really cold. I don't even need to turn the air conditioning on. So it becomes a little bit more physically uncomfortable for me if I'm doing it when it's yeah. in the, during the winter. Most people report getting cold during a fast, especially a longer fast. And obviously you can drink hot liquid is probably worth doing uh, under a doctor's supervision is making sure you know your thyroid levels ahead of time. And if your TSH, which is the, the cheap and not very accurate way of, of measuring thyroid function, if it's above one, you have a subclinical thyroid issue anyway, and you might want to ramp up your thyroid meds or even just go on a little bit of thyroid medication during fasting periods. And then your energy is right where it should be because the, the thyroid is the thermostat for the body. And I didn't put this in fast this way because it's an advanced medical strategy, but I did in my anti-aging book, most people over 40 or 50 have a little bit of thyroid dysfunction and it gets a little bit worse with each decade. And there's a great argument for supporting the thyroid with a small, small amount of you know, well-formulated T3, T4 mixture, like a, a thyroid glandular. And I find that that removes a lot of the heat problem. The other thing that will fix it remarkably well is something I learned in Tibet. And I had an experience when I was on Mount Kailash, which is you know a five-day drive on the remote part of Tibet. And it's the holiest mountain in the world, according to just multiple billions of people. Um, but it's very rugged, 18,000 feet elevation. So there's no air even, much less food. And you see these little Tibetan people, and I say little, I'm 6'4", and they're oftentimes not five feet tall. <laughs> and uh, there was one, one of the porters um, who, was, who was trekking with me. Um, he was showing off for one of the girls in the group, and he fell into an icy river um, up to his waist. He was wearing knockoff Levi's fake Nikes and a thin, like, plastic fake leather jacket. Okay. I'm trained in mountaineering, Dr. Mercola, and this guy's going to die of hypothermia and everything that I know. So I took an extra me, and he puts it in his basket to carry it for me because he didn't need to wear it. This guy who only for breakfast had yak butter tea and a little bit of barley flour could carry more than I could. And he could survive in things that would have put me in, probably it would have killed me to be honest. If I'd have done that, I would depleted enough. I, I didn't have the metabolism I have now. And the reason I think he could do it is that yak butter tea that they figured out in an environment with no air and no food is his water was exclusion zone water. So if you were to put a pinhead of grass-fed butter, I mean, a really small amount, like a quarter teaspoon or something, not enough to do anything to a fast and blend the crap out of the water, what you're going to find is that your ability to make heat goes up because you've structured the water and you don't have to use the body heat to change the water you drink, you use the body heat to stay warm. I think that'd be an epic hack for you. Yeah, interesting, thank you for the recommendation. Because I, uh, con concluded that quarterly fasting for me would be a really good strategy because, uh, and we're both attending a biohacking event a few days before we're recording this, but a few days before we were both attending. 
where I'll actually about the first and only educational event I'm going to this year because of the lockdowns. But uh, I think the the most powerful intervention, and I'm sure I'll learn more at this event, out there right now for anti-aging is senolytic therapy. And and I've concluded that senolytic therapy, ideally, it shouldn't be done regularly, maybe once a month at the most, probably once a quarter. Uh, And senolytic therapy is an administration of uh, usually supplements, although drugs can be used to get rid of senescent cells or zombie cells, which stops replicating. And we believe that causes so much inflammation and acceleration of the aging process. So if you do these therapies, you can just, it's close to miraculous what you can do, but ideally they should be done when you're fasting. So I would not do a senolytic therapy unless I was fasting. That's what I've concluded. And I'm, I might have no protein for sure when you're doing that. Yeah, but I mean, you're upregulating all the other metabolic pathways that are facilitated during autophagy and senolytic therapy is like an upgrade of autophagy. So, but I, would, I was kind of bummed because I did, I just did not, I feel so uncomfortable. I didn't want to do it because of the cold, but I'm going to give that a try. You know, I'll, I'll dialogue with you in private about the optimal dosing for the, the thyroid hormones, but that seems to be a simple, easy hack to get over that. It, there's also something that happens uh, when you've been either chronically ill from toxic metals or molds or just from a poor metabolism. You know, I had all of that stuff when I was very heavy um, to the point they diagnosed me with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, which are symptoms of toxic mold. Uh, and what you'll find is that that, that little bit of, of thyroid is magic, but sometimes your body temperature set point drops. And it was re- regular for me to be 96.8 or 97 degrees. And I ended up going through a very kind of abrupt procedure uh, for 10 or 20 days where I increased my body's set point. So if you find that you're running even a half a degree below 98.6, many of the enzymes in our body have a very narrow window of activity. And some of the aging will happen because you can't turn on the enzymes. So it's important your body temperature gets maintained. It's fine if you go down for a few days when you're fasting, but if it's regularly low, it indicates definitely a need for more thyroid and possibly for a more abrupt resetting of your body temperature. People who are listening to this, if your body temperature is really low, you got to look at your diet. Are you suppressing your thyroid by eating way too many raw cruciferous vegetables? Are there other things going on? And if not, it's an, it's just an epidemic right now. People with low thyroid function are much more likely to get diabetes and all sorts of other diseases like cancer. So that's a part of the equation here. I've also seen fasting magically help people's thyroid function because one thing you're doing when you fast, you are avoiding all the bad fats like linoleic acid, which we talked about. Um, you're avoiding all of the plant toxins and, and there's four categories of plant toxins um, that I've written about in my, my big diet book, there's lectins, uh, which are uh, a major issue. It's like in the first chapter, like, like, look, if you're sensitive to these and a third of us are, you might want to avoid those. So suddenly people are like, oh, I fasted and my joints stopped hurting. I'm like, newsflash. <laughs> you could have eaten something, just not the wrong thing. But since you took everything that might be bad out of your diet, you're getting all these benefits. There's also oxalic acid, which is a, a major thing that's present in kale right? There's all the heavy metals like thallium that comes in kale as well. Uh, And you're also not eating phytates, which block protein activity and keep you from absorbing minerals. Uh, And by the way, you can take mineral supplements during a fast, as long as they don't give you an upset stomach. And then you're also blocking uh, the consumption of mycotoxins. And if you're drinking that moldy coffee every morning, 
and then you go on a fast where you're not doing that um, or eating any of the other many foods that have small amounts of these toxins that work on a parts per billion to hurt your metabolism, like you feel good because you stopped eating stuff you didn't know was harming you. And then when you go back to eating again, if you eat cleaner food, you'll make a difference. And, and that's one of the other aspects in fast this way that's so important. If you don't want to suffer during a fast, the things you eat when you're not fasting determine whether you're hungry afterwards. Like how many people listening right now, they eat and then two hours later, they're hungry. That's not how it's supposed to be. If you're hungry, especially a half hour after you eat, but even two hours after you eat, you didn't eat right. You ate something that triggered a craving and it wasn't even hunger, it was a craving. And so part of what I'm working on guiding people through in fastest way is just to understand that what you had for dinner the night before determines whether you wake up going, God, I gotta get something in my stomach right now, or mm, I'm fine. And you're gonna learn to tune what you eat so that you're not hungry after you eat. And no one ever taught you that when you were young, but I found that I could control my hunger dramatically. And I know the foods that for me will reliably make me ravenous. And don't eat stuff that makes you ravenous. It's not compatible with your biology. And maybe it will be compatible with you later, but just understanding like, it's okay, man, I broke the fast today because I had something for dinner last night that clearly didn't agree with me. And I, I'm wrecked this morning and, and that's all right. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Now, one of the, you also uh, discuss lifestyles, interventions and strategies to integrate with the fast. And one of them is exercise, which I've been a big fan of for many, many decades, over five decades. So, uh, and, but you talk about the timing and the sequencing, which is so important because sequencing, especially in business, if you, you can do the right things, but if you do them in the wrong order, you got a huge problem (laughs) to massive failure. So the, with respect to exercise, you talk about fast time, restricted eating exercise Mm -hmm. while you're still fasting and then eat. Yes. Don't eat before you exercise. So I generally agree with that. I have a, a minor tweak that I typically do, but that's almost always the strategy I use. So why don't you tell us why we should do that? Well, there's something in the body called mTOR, and mTOR drives growth in the body. And mTOR will drive muscles. So if you want to get a bicep, Um, then you need some mTOR. But if your mTOR is chronically elevated, your risk of cancer and the diseases of aging go up. You eat too much protein, especially uh, certain amino acids, your mTOR levels go up and they stay up. And that's not good for you. It's not enough to trigger muscle growth. It's just enough to trigger inflammation. And the way mTOR works is you suppress mTOR. And then when you stop suppressing it, it surges forth and you get a big spike, which is what causes the benefits. And there's three things that are documented in studies to suppress mTOR. And I call the strategy tripling down on mTOR. And the first thing that is shown to increase mTOR is fasting. So the longer you fast, the lower your mTOR goes, which is good for triggering autophagy and things like that. And the other thing that lowers mTOR is coffee, (laughs) lowers mTOR. Mm. And the other thing that suppresses mTOR is exercise. And so, wait a minute, you mean I fasted and then I had some coffee during the fast. So I keep cranking down on it and I crank down it and then I exercise and it's really low. And then when you eat, which releases mTOR and you have adequate protein in that meal, the body is like, woohoo, I've got a huge surge of mTOR and I've got protein present. Now I'm going to go to work and I'm going to fix everything. I'm going to replace all the cells I got rid of during autophagy. I'm going to grow the new mitochondria. And then afterwards, you don't have excessive amounts 
of protein and you do some regular intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, and then your mTOR levels are relatively low. And then you spike them again when you do the practice again. And that's why you get more out of exercise when you do it at the end of a fast. Some people like to do it in the middle of a fast and it's okay to do that, but you need to be strong from an adrenal perspective because after you exercise, if you don't get some calories, the body's gonna say, uh, I kind of needed some glucose right now. In order to get glucose, I will release adrenaline and cortisol. And adrenaline and cortisol um, are things that are not anabolic, they're catabolic. They break down muscle tissue and the exercise also broke down muscle tissue. Then you'll say, well, I also you know, did some gluconeogenesis. I turned some of my muscle protein into sugar so I could do that. But the evidence that I've seen in my own practice shows that exercising at the end of a fast and then eating a meal that has adequate fat and adequate protein, and maybe even some carbs if you're not doing a ketogenic phase, but not sugar, just normal carbs is going to give you the best response for the exercise that you do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I've, I'm convinced this strategy has helped me radically build my muscles and improve my strength. Uh, and uh, because it activates muscle protein synthesis. And the key thing is you activate mTOR, but you have to have those branched chain amino acids or precursors to them like hydroxymethylbutyrate. Uh, but what I've noticed that you could, you can tweak it a little bit. And that's what I was referring to is you could, and Seem, Seem Lan agrees with this too, is that you could eat a little bit before, like maybe a half hour, an hour before your heavy workout of the week, where you're really going to just push it to the max. So you can push a little bit harder and get more of an mTOR tweak. Uh, and you know, that seems to work too, but, uh, but, but it's really close to the time where you've just completed your fast. So I think there's, there's, a, there's great logic in that advice and yeah. it's that you fasted and then you broke the fast right before the exercise, yes. because by the time those calories are digested and hit the blood sugar, you will be done with your workout. So what he's doing is he's basically giving you the energy right afterwards. Instead of if you eat afterwards, it's going to be a good half hour. Uh, before that stuff really hits the bloodstream. So he's saying, why wait a half hour after you exercise? So I would totally support that unless you're doing the kind of high intensity workouts um, that I'm a fan of. The ones where if I tried to do it with the full stomach, I think I might throw up. They're yeah, very yeah, short, but they're very well, intense. <laughs> it's a challenge. I've, I've noticed because I eat a full on meal before I do my, my heavy, I only do it twice a week, but uh, I've found that unless I have at least an hour before the workout, it's, you know, you have, you have challenge of your food, like burping up. So that's a big, big thing, but uh, it's, it's just great. And, and it's, a, it's such a profoundly powerful biological principle that has such dramatic benefits if you do it and you get out, you get to have larger muscle mass as you're aging, which is just extraordinary. And if you're someone like myself, who's really never been relatively muscular, it's, it's uh, profoundly psychologically beneficial. You, you feel better. And the interesting thing is for me, I, the most important thing has always been having my brain work. I'm an entrepreneur. I have two kids. I'm married, good relationship. And if I, if I had, you know, a dad bod, it's not the end of the world. And if I felt better and my blood markers were better, I would trade that off in a minute. But having muscle present is important because the more muscle you have, especially in your legs and your butt, uh, the more synapses you have in your brain. And there's good science about this now. So doing squats is a cognitive enhancing exercise. 
And so you've got to get that muscle mass up. And, and you and I also both know that as we age, one of the big seven pillars of aging and, and one that you've written about on your blog, one I've written about in my aging book is you get sarcopenia, but that's reflected in basically just cell loss. You have less cells, your collagen, in your skin gets thinner, your muscles get weaker and there's less cells in them. So when you say, I'm going to take charge of this, I'm going to change it by fasting and then, and then eating or eating right before um, I exercise, um, you end up with this really powerful thing where the muscles get bigger, the synapses in the brain grow, you get more of them and they are healthier. And then you don't have to deal with a cognitive decline that comes with aging. And you don't have to deal with a muscle decline that comes with aging. And, you know, my, my, stated goal is I'm going to live to at least 180. And some people think I'm nuts for that, but I just think we can do 120 right now because there's a couple of people that old. And I just figure in the next hundred years, we can do 50% better with the practices that you share, with the practices that many of our friends and colleagues are talking about. And with the advanced research and things like synolytic therapy and stem cells, and all of these kinds of crazy things, since these are happening right now and most of us just haven't done them yet, I really think many people who listen to this, who practice fasting of any way that works for them, who take your advice, um, they are going to have decades more high functioning life than they expect. And it's going to create an interesting world, but fasting is a major part of this. And that's why I decided it was, it was time to write a book about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and if we do implement these strategies and are fortunate enough to live after over 80, what the studies show pretty clearly is that 60% or more of people over 80 have sarcopenia, as you addressed earlier. And the, and the real problem with sarcopenia is that that leads to frailty. And yes. frailty is something you never want to get. And I am motivated to the max because both of my parents, both of them died from frailty. And it's not pretty. Uh, you eventually progressively lose almost all your capacity to ambulate, and that is not fun to see or experience. So uh, I am motivated beyond belief to make sure that I never encounter that. And that's why I'm so committed to resistance training and integrating these strategies. And, and you can avoid it. I'm convinced it's, you can be a centenarian and not be frail. What do you think about uh, hormone replacement as, as people age? I think it's a risky area personally, um, because if we're like playing God, this has been my observation. And I'm not suggesting that it isn't useful for some. I mean, if you're going to use it, it really 100% needs to be bioidentical. But oh, even yeah. that, you still can be problematic. Personally, I give myself a base hormone like pregnenolone. But since I've been doing carnivore for almost a year now, I'm thinking, and this is interesting, Dave. I'm going to just discuss this uh, with Dave Feldman, who you may or may not know. But, you know, one of the observations that people are doing carnivore is that their LDL and, and total cholesterol goes through the roof. And my total cholesterol has been about 150 most of my life. And oh, sometimes it was under 100. But now you won't believe it. I, mean, I tried every hack I knew just to get it to 175. I never had it over 200. In the last month, I got my total cholesterol at 300. 300. Congrats. It's great. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just like shocking. And it, and I'm not saying that to brag or boast or anything, but, but the reason I mentioned that is cholesterol is the precursor for hormones. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, and if you don't have enough cholesterol, you cannot make your hormones. So I think it's far more, a far more useful strategy to give your body the basic fundamental building blocks and then create what you need when you need and not try to play God, like superior intelligence and try to mismanage or micromanage the whole scenario. The, the studies on cholesterol are are convincing, uh, where people have the highest LDL that's not oxidized. Again, that's the key. Seed oils, seed oils will do that. Um, you know, they've been certainly off both of our recommendation lists for a long time. Well, seed oils and elevated glucose, so it's the combination because that creates oxidative stress that's going to damage those seed oils. Which is why if you have any processed food where they put seed oils and sugar in it, those are just death traps. You just don't want to do that. And when you get those, the, that LDL and HDL up, your odds of dying from all-cause mortality go down. So cholesterol it protects you from poison. It'll actually, certain types of poison will be stuck to you by cholesterol and then your body will excrete those. So I have never been afraid of high cholesterol unless LPPLA2 is high. And I mentioned this in fastest way as well. This is an enzyme that's released from the walls of your arteries if they're damaged. And my LPPLA2 is low and I measure my arterial flexibility and your arteries get less flexible as you age. It's called the pulse wave analysis. I have the arterial flexibility of a 24 year old. And so given that that's half my age, I feel like something's working <laughs> in all of this. Uh, but I also have used testosterone replacement therapy since I was 26. You still Are you still using it? I still use it. And I went off of it for about three years when I was developing uh, the principles of the Bulletproof Diet. And I found with really careful work, I could get my levels to about 700. But when I was 26, I had less testosterone than my mom. I mean, I had very, very low levels of it to the point when your testosterone levels are too low, your brain doesn't work like your zest for life is there and you're just cranky. So I've, I've experimented and I've just decided my quality of life is, is much higher when I'm on it. And I do my lab tests and I keep my levels in normal doses and it, uh, it works very well. And so I would tell people, get your labs. If your levels are low, um, then add more saturated fat, do the dietary intervention, sleep like a rock star. Well, sleep like someone who's good at sleeping, not like a rock star. And then you will, if your levels go up, you've got it. And if your levels don't go up, I'm a fan of, of replacing it because it helps you shed the that's so bad for you. And because it turns your brain back on and gives there's you more a, will. There's power. a key point there and you mentioned it and assumed everyone would know that, but the testing, the t there's a wide range of tests and most of them are beyond worse than worthless. In my experience, I believe the best test out there is a Dutch test, D-U-T-C-H, just like it sounds. And uh, they do, they combine a variety of assessment strategies and they just give you an enormously beneficial analysis that I think is the most spot on and accurate out there. Um, that is a great recommendation. I, I would agree with you. That's, that's the good one. And what I have found is that in men who over fast, you know, the, the I'm going to do OMAD forever because it sounds awesome or because I felt good for a while on it, their testosterone will reliably drop and their cortisone will go up. And women have the same effect, their testosterone drops, but it was already much lower, but also they tend to get disruptions in estrogen or progesterone. And 
then when the cortisol goes up and the hormones drop, that's when you start seeing hair loss and hair thinning in men and women. So it's like the first sign you're fasting too much is it is a your sleep quality goes down. You might still sleep eight hours. It's just wasn't very good sleep, or you wake up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep, and things like that. And then the next thing that starts happening is issues with your reproductive hormones. And for women, my cycle isn't right. I don't feel right. And you know, I have worse PMS if I'm still ovulating. And then in men, suddenly, you know, you have problems with erections. And then after that, the hair thinning starts. And so it's kind of a, a reliable progression for both men and women. Women tend to get it two to four weeks before men do. And the solution for that is really straightforward. It's like eat a little more often, <laughs> maybe exercise a little bit less while you're recovering because you overdid it and have some carbs at dinner. You don't have to have a lot of them, not sugar, but just some. And that can really, really help even with testosterone production. So it's one of those things where you know, should you have some honey with your carnivore diet? Well, the evidence that I've seen says, yeah, even if you're carnivore, you can do it. Yeah. yeah. So j just pragmatically, I'm wondering what your ranging on cycling of the carbs is for me, it's about 50 to 80 milligrams in my load, not milligrams, grams in my low days, and uh, maybe 150 grams, maybe up to 200, even on my high days, which is like almost every other day. So it's low, yeah. high, low, high. Uh, we are very similar. It For me, it's probably closer to 30 to 200, but I have no problem with 100 grams, 150 grams of carbs. And I use a continuous glucose monitor, the Levels Health one, and you can see it, it works. And when you do this, and you can see on a scale and, and all that, I don't have to be keto all the time. It's not necessary. Um, but when I do eat carbs, I do not eat inflammatory carbs. I don't eat grains other than white rice that's been soaked uh, and pounded. And uh, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't eat sugar and stuff like that. And it really makes a big difference because if you're doing it wrong, um, you're not going to like what happens. Uh, so having safe carbs versus unsafe carbs, they're different universes. And the same thing with fat. I tell people, oh, yeah, I, I have at least half my my diet's fat and oftentimes 70% of my calories. But man, if I did that with canola oil, soybean oil, and safflower oil, I would be a walking tumor at this point in my life, not to mention my brain wouldn't work. Yeah. You know, my first book was The No Grain Diet, written 16 years ago. It was a New York Times bestseller. Read it. <laughs> at the, and not until recently... So I've obviously been not recommending grains for a long time and I could have didn't have recommend them before the book also, but I didn't recommend we appreciate until recently that grains are loaded with linoleic acid, which is, I mean, obviously they're loaded with many other potentially problematic things, as you mentioned and referenced earlier, but LA may be one of the most pernicious. So if you're eating small amounts, not a problem, but large amounts, definitely problematic. There's something that happens to, uh, when you go on a plant-based diet, is it by definition, you're getting more of these bad fats. And for the first approximately six weeks, um, your body says, oh, these fats are disrupting my mitochondrial membranes, um, but I know what to do about that. I'm going to turn up thyroid function. So then you feel really good, right? But eventually you tap out. And this is why so many people get thyroid problems, including Hashimoto's on a plant-based diet is eventually you tap out and I says, I can't turn the thermostat up anymore. It's up all the way and it's still not working. And that's when the first wave of problems from a plant-based diet comes in. And it is driven in large part by those bad fats because of what they do to the membrane. Well, well let me just refine that because, you know, it's sort of judgmental saying they're bad. They are, in my view, only bad in excess. 
but have, essentially 99% of people have them in excess, 99%. I, uh, uh, the, the anti-aging crowd uh, that I'm a, a fan of um, has recommended for probably 30 years to have a ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 in the body of four to one. And when I went as hard as I could go, I got my ratio down to 1.38 or 1.58 to one. So I was eating very, very little omega-6. And I found out that was too low. Um, so I, I, there is a, a place where you don't have enough arachidonic acid and you, you need yeah, these. Yeah. No, you, you need them. Yeah, you need definitely. But almost, if you're eating food, you're going to get enough. I mean, Even grass-fed beef has 2%. There's no way around it. But there, yeah. there's a problem with the six to three ratio though, uh, because I think it's potentially dangerous in that it allows someone to eat excessive linoleic acid and think they're compensating by taking over excessive omega-3 because omega-3 fats are still polyunsaturated and just as susceptible to oxidative yeah. damage as omega-6. So yes, you need the ratio to be right, but the caveat, just like don't eat at least three hours before bedtime, you know, to, you know, eat for six hours a day, but you know, the last meals right before you go to bed, no, devil's in the details. So you, you need to make sure that your threshold of linoleic acid is a certain level, about one to 2% of their total calories are ideally under five grams a day. And there's some simple programs you could do to analyze that. We, we've also got to talk about plant-based omega-3s versus animal-based omega-3s because they're different fats. And a lot of people make that mistake. So that's why you and I are both fans of krill oil because um, krill oil is a source of DHA, especially in, in a way that it can be absorbed into the brain because it's phosphorylated. And so the idea that, oh, I'm going to fix my ratios, but you got to know what omega-6 are you eating and what omega-3 are you eating? And it's not permission to go out and eat a bunch of, you know, even olive oil, way too much of that. It's got omega-3s. It's got the wrong omega-3s. So for me, I will do a tablespoon or so of very high quality, unoxidized, full polyphenol uh, olive oil, uh, but not more than that. And I don't do that every day. It actually tastes good on salad and it seems to be just fine with all of the labs that I do. But if you were to say, I'm going to break a fast with, you know, an olive oil smoothie. <laughs> no, don't do that. Eight to 10 tablespoons. You know, there are some people, they think olive oil is a healthy sauce. It's a super, it's a super food. And they don't understand it's loaded with linoleic acid, which the way you're using it is perfectly fine because, you know, you're within your threshold of healthy linoleic acid. But if you go and abuse it and have eight or 10 tablespoons a day, as many people do thinking it's healthy, you're actually causing disease strategy or disease implementation processes. So it it's a it's a really hard thing to understand. You know, if, if you hear this, you're like I'm feeling overwhelmed right now, but the basic rules are eat a lot less plant oils. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, eat grass-fed animals, not not industrial animals. Industrial animals have the same oils as the bad oils in them because they feed them the wrong stuff. So grass feds important. No, that's not necessarily true. That even industrially raised capo raised uh, beef still has relatively low amounts of linoleic acid. I mean, it's surprising. Really? Even if they're fed crap, now they yeah. have other toxins in there. To, to, There's a lot of reasons to, not to eat them. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. But there are some knowledgeable people like uh, Tucker Goodrich who's studied this for about eight years, and he just told me, and I interviewed him last week, and he said when when he goes traveling, he goes to McDonald's and just has the burgers and throws uh, away the bun. So I know that's pushing it, but you know, he, he's convinced it's, it's 
it's not not high in LA. Here's a good strategy though. If you're going to eat an industrial animal, eat the leanest cut you can get because the fat soluble toxins are real. To yeah, make yeah. animals grow, they put something called uh, Xeranol, which is a thing ranchers buy. I run a small farm. You've been to my small farm. We, we mm-hmm. did a video up there a couple of years ago. We now have pigs and sheep though that we didn't have back then and chickens too. Oh, nice. So I don't eat the chickens. They're just good for egg yolks. But uh, what they do oh, is they- I, I got, can't wait to share my chicken because I feed my chickens differently now. I, they're, oh. on, they're on a low LA diet. <laughs> I got mine too. Who would have imagined, right? Oh, and my pigs do intermittent fasting and the Bulletproof diet. And- <laughs> I'm, fe- I'm feeding my chickens butter. <laughs> yeah. You want to, it really makes a difference. Butter and coconut oil will change the, the, and there's studies on that. But what they do for cattle is they take something called xeranol, which is a concentrated mycotoxin xenoestrogen. It's a thousand times stronger than estrogen. And they put a waxy pellet in the cow's ear and then it dissolves into the cow's bloodstream over time. And get this, the cow gets fat on 30% less calories. That marbled muscle meat that you see, this is a fat soluble toxin that is present in the meat still. And then the ranch say, oh no, it's not present, but they're not testing for it. And if you want to have tissue, muscle tissue, that's nicely marbled with fat, eat the fatty cuts of industrial meat. Don't eat industrial meat for a whole variety of reasons. Like it's destroying our soil, our water, the soil bacteria, bad for the world, all that bad for the animals. But most importantly, you want clean fat full of fat soluble nutrients. And you only get that from grass fed animals. And, you know, to, to sort of say, oh yeah, um, I guess I could kind of do it with conventional meat. Yeah. You could also like order everything in styrofoam, but you're going to pay the consequences over time when that styrofoam's in the fish you eat later. So we, you know, we've covered most of, not most, but a good portion of the, uh, pearls in your book, but there's many, many more, which obviously in this format, we're not going to be able to review. So Maybe if you can summarize the things and the 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 or mention the items that you think are important that we haven't covered pre, yeah. pre before this, and you know, give people a reason that consider what, purchasing this book, and uh, you know what they're going to get from it and the benefits of doing that. In, in fastest way, I, I talk about how to combine time restricted eating and fasting with light and how to use that to make yourself into a morning person or to make yourself into someone who can stay up past 8 p.m. or how to deal with jet lag. So the combination of food and light, light's the most important circadian signal, but food is the second most important. And when you align those properly, you can really radically change your normal bedtime and your normal weight. My average bedtime now is 10.30 because I dialed in at the same time my food and my light. And I teach how to do that. And I also talk about supplements that improve the quality of your fast and the benefits you get and supplements to not use because they will break a fast or because there's some I call the barfy four (laughs) that you just don't want to take those on an empty stomach. So learning how to supplement during a fast to get more results, learning what to do during a fast to never feel hunger again, and then learning the psychology of fasting so that you don't feel like you're going without there's also a section on, on other types of fasting, like a social media fast, like a dopamine fast, um, and fasting, thing, things that we don't think of as fasting, like cold therapy is fasting from heat for a brief period of time. Intermittent hypoxic training or certain breathing exercises, it's fasting from oxygen for a brief period of time. And what we know now and what is in Fast This Way is simply that 
when you show the body that it will be required to regularly go without something it thinks it needs, you walk away from that as a stronger person, as your willpower is stronger, but more importantly, your cells are stronger and then they will give you more energy all of the time. And going from a 300 pound tired, fat, uncomfortable guy to where I am now, even though I'm 48, if I could do it, I think anyone listening to this could do it. Yeah. And you also talk about fasting from certain words like try and a few yeah. others. Which was really, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it should be in a fasting book, but it, it was brilliant. Well, if, if you wake up and say, today, I'm going to try to fast, I guarantee you, you'll fail. <laughs> if you wake up and say, today, I'm going to fast, you'll probably succeed. And what I, I, I do encourage people to do, in fact, when people you know send me the receipt from the book uh, and fastthisway.com, I'm actually going to teach them as a former teacher at the University of California, as I've, I maybe haven't done a good enough job of explaining what I do. But I'm going to teach him for a couple of weeks leading up to a spiritual fast, which is how to use fasting to actually do personal development work, which is different than fasting for metabolic benefits. Almost our whole interview has been like, here's all the met metabolism stuff. But if you want to have more control of who you are and how you show up in the world, there's that side. So I'm leading people through either a 24 or a 48 hour fast as a large group where I'm talking and answering questions every day, just because I think it matters so much. Like I, you know, very well, writing books is a terrible way to make money. Mm -hmm. Like it's small, it's thousands of hours of effort, but I, I think this knowledge is worth it. So I did it. And I know you, you're driven by the same things I'm driven by. Uh, but this kind of knowledge about how to just be in charge of yourself. I, I didn't think I had that. And I do now, and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And that's why I wrote fast. How do the mechanics of that work with the, if people want to take you up on that offer? All you've got to do is pre-order Fast This Way, wherever you like to order books. And then you can send a copy of a receipt into the website, fastthisway.com. There's a little upload form. And then I sign you up for this two-week program every day. Um, you're getting the, the training. So I'll teach you the fasting hacks. We'll do some intermittent fasting together in a community. And then um, towards the end of this, we will actually do this. All right, today's our 24-hour or 48-hour fast. I'm going to lead you through it. And we're going to actually do meditation well, that's and great. The, the gratitude side of this. And this isn't like a continuation. I want you to sign up forever. I just want to teach you this book because I spent thousands of hours writing it and I want you to get it. <laughs> how that works. So when, when does that training occur? What uh, you can send your receipt in any time. And then the training starts right after the book comes out. So you have time to get it. So the book, when is the book? It hits shelves January 19th and January 21st, I'm going to be starting the fast. And so people okay. be reading the book, talking about the book with each other and with me. And so you want to ask the author questions, I'm going to be there for you. Yeah, that's a great timing. You know, obviously a lot of people uh, like to implement New, Year in, New Year's uh, Eve. Uh, mo not Resolution. yeah. Resolutions, yes, I lost the word. Uh, so that's a good timing for that. Excellent. All right. So the name of the book, Fastest Way. If you want to take Dave up on the generous offer and uh, benefit from all the time and effort and energy he's invested in this, not only in writing the book, but the years of diligent uh, work and researchers he, he uh, compiled prior to writing it. So uh, take advantage of it and get the book. Uh, thanks, Dr. McCullough. And just on a personal note, man, you're you're one of the greats, and, and I've benefited so much from your knowledge and work ever since you started your blog in 1997. I was reading it, uh, so just th thank you for talking about years of work before it went out there. Um, you've you've been at the grindstone for a long time, and, and you're still yeah. helping a lot of people. So I appreciate yeah, it. It's fun, and you know, I'm a, I'm a perpetual student, so I, I have many teachers, and you're certainly one of them. And uh, really appreciate what you 
brought to the table. And, and seriously, there is no other conference, I would think would be the best way to describe it, a community that I've encountered in all my life, like the, the biohacking event you could put together. And it's just an extraordinary compilation of resources in a community that is just my absolute favorite event. And I was saddened this year that it had to be canceled, not once, but twice. So hopefully you, your team will figure out where to have it next year so it won't be canceled because uh, it, it, I, I have acquired access to so many resources that literally transformed and changed my life forever. Oh, that makes me so happy. I would suggest uh, for listeners, go to biohackingconference.com and then you can you know, sign up, just get on the email list. And I will tell you exactly you know, all the details for it. Right now it's scheduled for April and we'll see what the governments allow, but we are very committed to making it happen in person. And it is the preeminent and the first biohacking event ever. And it's where a huge amount of my energy goes. And the fact that even with your level of knowledge, Dr. Mercola, that it was able to offer you some cool stuff that then you made my day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a lot of work and I mean, I'm not, I, I could do a lot of things, but that, that is not something that I would want to try to do. Because, you know, it's a, I know I've done them you know, 15, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, actually. And uh, yeah, I mean, just to put that together, I mean, you succeeded on such a magnificent level. So eight years, eight years in running. And I'm just grateful to have a team of awesome people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, you hit it, I hit it out of the park with it and I can't wait for 2021 to go. <laughs> I missed it so much this year. But anyway, <laughs> I've indirectly benefited because I'm still benefiting from the what I picked up in 2019 last year. So, all right. Well, it's good. And we'll see you very soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Sounds great.